Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see, see you all. Uh, we've been looking at, um, over the summer, this series on the fruit of the Spirit based on Galatians chapter 5. We've been looking at the character traits that are listed there, nine of them, that make up the fruit of the Spirit. And we've arrived today at the last one. We've got a baptismal service next Sunday. And today's the last Sunday of this series. And we've arrived at this important quality of self-control. I, I wonder whether this last one seems a little strange at first because it seems a little bit out of place with some of the others, uh, other things in this list. Uh, first of all, the other things in the list, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, they all seem to be about our relationship with God and with other people. Whereas this one, self-control, is much more individual. But all the others also, to me, seem like such positive traits. And maybe this one sounds a little bit grim. I don't know what you think when you hear self-control. The very idea of self-control implies a fight going on within ourselves, doesn't it? Maybe just thinking about self-control makes some of us groan inwardly because I, I think often our biggest struggles are not those outside of us. Our biggest struggles are with ourselves often. The truth is that we humans have flown to the moon. We've built hadron colliders that can smash subatomic particles into each other. We've produced stunning art, cured horrible diseases, achieved thrilling sporting victories. What we find much harder is, is controlling our own appetites and mastering our own selves. There was a great, uh, I never know how to say this word, Tsar of Russia, King of Russia, the Tsar, known as Peter the Great, in a fit of temper, he struck his gardener and a few days later the man died and apparently Peter the Great lamented the fact, I've conquered other nations, but I have not been able to conquer myself. It seems so right that self-control is included here in this list of the fruit of the Spirit, though, because the reality is that all of the other ones depend on this one. Self-control is not intended here by Paul to be a depressing optional extra tagged on to the end of this list. The truth is that none of us can or will experience a fruitful Christian life if we lack self-control. This affects every area of our life and involves learning to manage our bodies, our thoughts, our feelings, our time, our money. And our tongues. How many times in life are we expressing, I shouldn't have said that. 
I shouldn't have done that. A lack of self-control in any of these areas can ruin or waste our lives and destroy and damage our relationships. I want to be sensitive as well today with this because although I think it's true that all of us struggle to some degree with our self-control, some of us may experience significant extra challenges in this area because difficult circumstances or painful experiences or abusive people have driven us at times towards harmful or addictive behaviors that can be very complex to escape from or to resolve. In the end though, I'm so glad for the hope contained for all of us in this simple statement, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. When you think about it, something of the great love that God has for us is expressed here. Isn't it wonderful that God does not want your life to be out of control? Isn't it wonderful that God wants your life to be safe, healthy, and energized with good, joyful purpose? I often think that this world often portrays the lie somehow that Christianity is restrictive and limiting and controlling and narrow. One of the problems with that is that the world believes that it's free, when in actual fact, spiritually, it isn't free at all. So I've been praying this week, just preparing to, to talk with you on this last uh, item in this list. I've been praying this week that as we try and unpack this together this afternoon, that the concept of self-control won't make you groan inwardly with either the burden of the responsibility of it or the guilt of regret at failing at it or the shame of something done to you that makes self-control especially difficult for you but that our hearts would sense something of the beauty of what God calls each one of us to and promises here to scaffold and sustain us and strengthen us in. Here's what we're going to do then. Um, man, there's, there's so much in this topic, isn't there? I feel like whatever I do with this topic, we're going to get to the end and someone's going to say, you didn't mention this and you didn't mention this. this is, we, could have, we could do a series on this topic on its own but here's what we're going to try and do we're going to try and break this down into three parts first of all we're going to look at two pictures of what self-control well to help us get a handle on what self-control actually is and then in the last part I want to consider an important question and the question is this what's the difference between biblical self-control and gritting your teeth <laughs> 
What's the difference between self-control as the Bible understands it and just mere sheer human willpower? In other words, why is this beautiful rather than grim? You get that? As we go, we're going to look at a few different passages of Scripture, but we'll close by landing in that passage that Ian read to us in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, so I'm looking forward to the end to look at that with you briefly. But first of all, let's look at two striking pictures to illustrate self-control. Here's the first. The athlete. Self-control involves, to some degree, having a clear life-shaping purpose. So this, this picture, first of all, is that of an athlete. And we can find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Maybe we can just go there, uh, first of all. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 24, let me read to you. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. In my Bible, it's on page 1150, if you're, if you're trying to find it. I've no idea what page it'll be in yours, but it'll be there in bolts. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Listen to the words of Paul to Christians there. Do you not know... That in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man, running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The ancient city of Corinth was very famous for its sporting games, festivals. So Paul's readers would instantly get this illustration. Do you not know that in a race all the runners won, but only one gets the prize? In those days, the winning athletes wouldn't get a gold medal. They would receive a twisted sort of crown of leaves or a garland that would go on the winner's head when they, when they, when they won. And so Paul uses this well-known image to his readers here in Corinth to inspire them. The point is, that no one wins a race or a fight without some kind of dedication. If you want to win, you have to commit. You have to build your whole life around that goal. There'll be sacrifices to make. There'll be hard choices to come to terms with. I, I think... This, this speaks for itself almost. But let me, let me highlight two things that, about this kind of commitment that would be required for an athlete. Oh, obviously, you can tell I'm an athlete. <laughs> no, no. Athlete eating, maybe. Professional eater. Um, what do I know about being an athlete? Here's, here's two things, though, uh, about being an athlete that, that I think being an athlete would involve if I was one. 
First of all, surely being an athlete involves subordinating all of life's little choices underneath a single, clear, larger purpose. You get that? If you're going to be an athlete, athletes are not confused with lots of different competing goals. They have one single minded purpose and every other smaller choice that crops up kind of lives under that one supreme goal. Athletes have to watch what they eat. They have to make sure they get proper rest. They have to embark on training regimes. No athlete is drifting along hoping for the best. And there can be no distractions if they want to win. So there's something here about having a long-term big goal and then bringing all the other short-term little choices into line with that single purpose. It's interesting to me that there's lots of secular writers who understand that there's something about self-control that involves delayed gratification. People call it. If we're driven by impulsive short-term choices, that can be a lack of self-control. So the idea is that we try and stop and pause and think about long-term consequences and let the bigger goal shape the moment. Let, let's think about this as Christian believers. If someone asked you today to write down your main purpose in life, how would you sum it up with a sentence? Elsewhere, Paul sums up his life and motivations. In Philippians chapter 3, let me read to you. These are amazing words. Paul writes to the church there in Philippi. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Wow! (laughs) To write that in a letter to the church at Philippi, Paul must have actually sat down and spent time thinking about who he was, where he was going, why he was doing the things he was doing, who God was calling him to be. And somehow, at some point, Paul had set his stall out to pursue this with single-minded devotion. When we read the Gospels, Jesus is a supreme example of a man who knew his purpose. But in his teaching too, Jesus also knows how crucial it is for us, his followers, to get their priorities in order. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6? Seek first his kingdom 
and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. It is hard to win the little battles along the way if the big goal is shaky or flaky. Sometimes you have to decide who you are and where you're going before you get to the crossroads. And I think Paul here is urging us, inspiring us to kind of take ourselves in hand, to get a grip on ourselves. But there's a second important aspect, I think, of this idea that sometimes we can forget. And, it, and it's, it's this, it's the fact that this takes time and persistence. We, we need to remember in our lives that steady progress over time is better than a quick fix. No athlete I'm aware of believes that they'll be winning a gold medal by taking some magic pill except maybe a cyclist <laughs> or a Russian weightlifter. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you know the point. I, I think everything in our modern lives is geared up to be instant. We're bombarded by so many offers of shortcuts and quick fixes. And we're in such a hurry to get to the destination that we forget in our lives what patient, faithful, steady progress even is. And so often it spills over into us being on such, in, in such a hurry, expecting to be the finished article in two minutes. We get irritated with ourselves if we don't get something straight away. This image is a helpful one because I don't think there's a single successful sports person who will tell you, I just got lucky and hit the jackpot by accident. It took me two minutes. I saw a great clip this week of the tennis player, Emma Raducanu, aged 11 coming second runner-up in a kids' tournament final. And she was asked afterwards what her thoughts were. And her answer, even as an 11-year-old, was all about working hard to improve. It made me wonder what happened to the other girl that beat her at age 11. And now she wins the US Open, age 18. There is no silver bullet. There is no shortcut. There is no miracle scheme. I read somewhere once that to get really good at something, you, you have to do something like 10,000 hours of practice to get really good at something. Wow. I love that Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit as fruit. Because fruit doesn't just instantly drop off trees, finished, does it? It has to grow and develop and ripen. And all of that takes what? Time. Sometimes we would do well to slow down 
And instead of focusing on the next quick fix, be content instead to think about regular, steady progress. So there's our first positive picture. When Paul thinks of living as a Christian, this is the image that comes to mind for him. And it's that of an athlete. Self-control requires a clear life-shaping purpose and it will do its best work over the long term through being consistent. The second picture is in a way making the same point but from the opposite angle and it's a more negative perspective and here it is self-control is pictured in the Bible in this way the city self-control involves being shielded from vulnerability i'm taking this picture from proverbs 25 i did put it on there proverbs 25 verse 28 which provides a dramatic description of an individual living out of control and it says this like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control it's the same idea but this time from the negative perspective. You get that? If if the first picture was aspirational and positive, this one is more of a warning, isn't it? This is what life looks like where there's no self-control. A broken city that is wide open and vulnerable. The drawbridge is down. The moat's dry. The walls are rubble. There's a big sign up in this city saying to enemies, Come on, in, come on in and get it. If you have no self-control, you'll be vulnerable. It's a striking picture, isn't it? A simple picture of weakness and insecurity. I was thinking about this this week, and perhaps the greatest and saddest example of this in the Bible is Samson. If you read the book of Judges in the Old Testament, Samson was born to be the protector of Israel. God had said that he would begin their deliverance from their enemy, the Philistines. But Samson's weakness was women in one way, but when he wasn't burning with desire, he was burning with anger. Samson doesn't seem to have been happy unless he was either fighting or flirting. In the end, he loses his hair, his eyes, his dignity, and ultimately his life. Samson could kill a lion with his bare hands, but he couldn't control his own appetites. Like a city whose walls are broken down, is is a man or woman who lacks self-control. Sometimes self-control will mean putting up walls, establishing boundaries. Sometimes sometimes I think the idea of self-control makes us think of this like constant fighting with fierce temptation Sometimes that can be the case, but in a way, this picture is not an attacking picture. This is about being secure. It's it's almost a defensive picture. 
And sometimes the best defense is surrounding yourself with strong walls. Deliberately placing yourself in an environment that will help to keep you safe rather than vulnerable. It makes no sense to be dancing around on the edge, the very edge of the things that you find most tempting to try and prove somehow that you can win. I think this is important in two ways. It's important practically. Let me, let me say this and underline it. There, there are always many and major crises that are cropping up from time to time in our lives, aren't there? But in general terms, we will always be more vulnerable when we're tired, hungry, <laughs> or running on empty. Our, your resources and my resources for self-control are not infinite. Self-control is so much more difficult when our emotional and physical re resources are depleted. So build walls, first of all, by getting some sleep, <laughs> eating well, look after yourself practically. Don't try to run on empty where you can build routine and rhythm into your life that will help you and prevent you from being vulnerable. But this is also very true spiritually, isn't it? How can we build walls and, and protect ourselves from being vulnerable and wide open? Christians, I, th I think, used to talk about something called the means of grace. If you heard that phrase, the means of grace. What, what they mean by that was that there are certain things that God in his kindness has given to us for our good. And those things will be the means of building us up in our faith, helping us grow as Christians there are things you can do and habits you can build into your life that will serve to protect you, strengthen you. And the idea is, I suppose, to take advantage of these means of grace that God gives to you, to build walls that will protect you from being vulnerable. First of all, God has given you his word. Do you cultivate the daily habit of being in his word every day? God's throne room is also open to hear your prayers and cries and groanings. Without these daily, simple, dare I say it, boring disciplines. It's as if there are no walls. We're wide open. I'm not sure in my life if I've met yet a healthy Christian who neglected to prioritize their own relationship with God in private. 
Another wall is that God also promises to be present with his believing people as they gather like this to worship him, to seek him, and to hear from his word. Do you know that your church family is a gift of God to your soul? Sometimes it is true that there can be turmoil going on in your heart. But building walls around your life with such disciplines will comfort you, encourage you, grow you, and protect you in the long term. So these two pictures, I think, are so helpful in giving us a good sense of what self-control is. It involves both purpose and protection. Isn't it tremendous that God's desire for you is to live a life of purpose and security? Isn't that what all parents want for their kids? Isn't that what we want for ourselves? And here it is. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Purpose and protection. So, lastly, I promised that we would close by showing how self-control isn't the same as gritting your teeth. It's not mere human willpower. And I want to close by suggesting four reasons why biblical self-control is so much more than willpower. And the first is this, because you're not alone in this. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. How does that work? What a paradox that is. Is self-control our work or is it a gift? Is it God's promise or is it our effort? Are you meant to do everything or are you meant to do nothing because God does all of it? Answers on a postcard. I, I think and I hope that you know that of, of course on one level it is all of God. We wouldn't even want to follow him at all, would we, unless he had begun a gracious good work of salvation in our hearts. But as Christian believers, the idea here is that, oh, sometimes I hear people say to a young child, you can do it, you can do it. The truth is, as a Christian believer, you can do it. Why? Because as you do it, God is with you. Let me show you a couple of passages that I love because they strike this incredible balance. Here's Paul in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 29. It'll just appear on the screen. Save us looking it up. Here's what Paul says. I labor, struggling, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. What a phrase that is. The way Paul approaches his whole ministry is to work hard. He even says, it's a struggle. That's okay. 
But he's not an individual gritting his teeth with grim determination. He strives with the confidence that as he works hard, God is infusing his human labor with divine power. And it's not as if he's waiting for his battery to be fully charged before he starts. It's not as if God gives him a year's worth of energy or winds him up and sets him off for a while. What this verse is implying is more that as he applies himself to the task obediently, the power is there. It, that, that, that's more the thing. It's like he's plugged in. It, Sometimes I think we, we struggle to be obedient to what God's calling us to do because we're waiting to feel something, to feel like it, or to... Sometimes we have to obey and then the power from God infuses our labor with... I labor struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works in me. Paul never says, I can't do it. Because he trusts that God can. This is true faith. Paul works and even struggles in the good confidence that as he does so, God will supply what he needs. Same idea is found in Philippians chapter 2. Here's another one. Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good, good purpose. The Bible's idea of self-control is not DIY morality. It isn't grim determination. Sometimes, yes, it is hard, but it's not sheer, mere human willpower. Biblical self-control is striving hard with the assurance and confidence that God's Spirit is at work in your heart as you put one foot in front of the other, obeying Him. I want to turn finally then to, to Peter chapter 1. I said we'd land here. Oh, I wish we had more time, but we'll, we'll skip through Three more reasons. So first reason that self-control is not willpower is because you're not alone. The second reason is because Christ gets the glory. If, if self-control was just sheer willpower, we would get the glory. But look at the logic of what Peter says here in this brilliant chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 3, look at verse 3. Peter writes, This is the same Peter, by the way, who denied Christ three times. There's hope for all of us. And failure is not fatal. This, hear Peter's words here, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In a sense, there's purpose and protection again in, those, in, in, in verse 4. So God has given you everything you need. He's called you to himself. He's given you his promises. But look at the balancing command that Peter then gives in verse 5. In the light of all of that, for this very reason, make every effort. It's, it's like God has given you everything. And because of that, make every effort. Strive. So Paul's logic here, sorry, Peter's logic here, Paul's logic as well, Peter's logic here is that God gives us everything we need and for that very reason we can strive. So the difference between worldly self-control, willpower, and godly self-control is crucial because it decides who will get the glory for victory. Will it be us or will it be Christ? If we're exercising self-control by faith in Christ and in his very great and precious promises, as Peter says here, it's him who gets the glory. Thirdly, self-control biblically is not sheer willpower because Christ is also the ultimate reward. An athlete trains hard make sacrifices because they're spurred on by the hope of winning. And there is something, isn't there, about self-control. This is why we think it's grim. That does involve restraint and perseverance. But both of those things need some kind of hope, don't they? To sustain them. No one can or will endure anything or deny themselves something unless they believe in and are waiting for something better. Look at verse 11 of this uh, section here. Peter says, If you do these things, you'll never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Just, Just look at those words again during the week this week and let them sink in. You will receive a rich welcome. What does that even mean? Here is the goal and the reward. At the end of the journey to receive a rich welcome. To hear Jesus himself say at the end of the day, well done. Come on in. (laughs) To receive the winner's crown from him. Whatever the world thinks of you in the short term, This is the ultimate prize 
and the only prize that in the end really matters. And fourthly and lastly, willpower is, is not the same as what we're talking about here because biblical self-control is never rooted in fear. It's rooted in forgiveness. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1 is very interesting because in a way it's another list of things to work on. It's a little bit like the fruit of the Spirit from verse 5. Peter says, for this very reason, God has given you everything, so for this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. That's what we're talking about, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection or brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. If you possess these things in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But verse 9 is not what you would expect. Peter says, if anyone doesn't have these things, i.e. all the things in that list, he's short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. That is a stunning statement. And I, I think we would expect that to be the other way around. What Peter is saying is that you don't do any of these things on this list to earn forgiveness somehow. Actually, you do the things on this list because you've been forgiven. And if you're not doing these things, he says, it's actually because you've forgotten <laughs> that you've been forgiven. In other words, the starting point here is the full and free and complete forgiveness that comes through Jesus and his death for us upon the cross. The knowledge of that forgiveness in our lives and the security and the peace and the assurance that brings is the very garden in which all of these qualities can then grow. Paul or Peter, neither of them, were striving in order to be forgiven or accepted or affirmed. Their striving, their work, their effort, their obedience grew out of them being forgiven and accepted and affirmed. So too, your ability to exercise self-control is possible because in Christ, you, you, you have forgiveness for the past. You have the supernatural help of the Spirit of God in the present. And the tremendous hope of a glorious destination. You may not yet be who you will be one day when God is finished with you. But by God's grace, you know that you're not now what you once were. Praise God. Praise God that the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. 
We're going to sing. We're going to sing a very appropriate song. Thank you, Ewan. Let's um, let's see something of the beauty, rather than the grimness, of what self-control truly is. And maybe we can use this song as we worship God for the blessings of the gospel that He gives to us. Yet not I, but Christ, through Christ in me.